How's everybody doing? It's 12.51 p.m. It's Monday, November 29th. We're going to listen to some news. Astro World Festival victory. On the evening of November 5th, tens of thousands of people in NRG Park in Houston waited in anticipation of rapper Travis Scott's performance. Revelry quickly turned to tragedy. Ten people died and dozens were injured. To illuminate what happened amid the crowd, the Washington Post gathered dozens of videos from that night and examined them to determine where and when each was taken. We interviewed witnesses. Got sucked into this black hole, basically. And we had experts analyze the movements of the crowd and its density in key areas. The post-investigation found that at least seven of those who later died were located in one area of the audience. Three of those victims can be seen unconscious amid a pile of fans on the ground about 16 minutes into the show, which continued for nearly an hour. The review also reveals that minutes into Scott's show, that same section had pockets of extremely high density, according to a crowd analysis done for the Post, a circumstance that three experts said increased the risk of a dangerous crowd collapse. Three crowd science experts told the Post that a surge toward the main stage would have compressed people into this area that had rigid metal barriers on three sides and left little way for them to escape the building pressure. A criminal investigation is ongoing, and the causes of deaths have not been made public. But the Post's reconstruction, which includes exclusively obtained videos, shows how one section of the audience became an epicenter of chaos. Fans arrive at NRG Park in the early morning on Friday, long before the gates open. Over the next few hours, while some shop, eat, and attend daytime concerts, videos show instances of scattered mayhem. Fans break perimeter fences, rush entrances, and storm security checkpoints. The festival is a sprawling site with a main stage where Scott will perform in the evening and a secondary stage for the day's other performances. The audience section at the main stage covers roughly the area of three football fields. The metal barriers divide a smaller section close to the stage into quadrants to the north, south, east, and west, creating pathways used by security and medical personnel to move through the crowd. Throughout the day, devoted Scott fans stake out their spots around the main stage. By six, attendees are filling the area, with Scott's performance still three hours away. Around seven was when obviously everyone was there, like thousands of people were there. I was already getting really pushed against the barricade. A show at the secondary stage by singer SZA wraps up at about 8.30, and a flood of festival goers moves from there toward the main stage's south quadrant, according to witnesses. A concert goer described getting caught in the current flowing toward the main stage, unable to move in the opposite direction. We actually wanted to get out. Like, the one of the girls I was with, she was like, hey, I don't want to do this, I want to get out. So we were trying to get out, but we just kept getting pushed forward and forward. As the crowd balloons, a large timer counts down to the start of the main stage event. <laughs> Scott's show begins around 9, and the crowd erupts in excitement as he enters. As soon as Travis reaches the stage, there's just a whole different, like, shift into the crowd. Video shows the crowd in the South Quadrant swaying at the beginning of the concert. Nine-year-old Ezra Blunt, an avid Scott fan, is atop his father's shoulders in a video that a lawyer for the family confirmed is the boy. Madison Dubisky, 23, at the show with her brother, is in the same area, according to another video obtained by the Post. Close by, 27-year-old Donish Bay and his fiancée try to escape the crowd, but they fall shortly after the concert begins, according to a family lawyer. 
All three are among the seven concertgoers who died and appear in the post-investigation. The identities and locations of the other victims were confirmed by relatives or family representatives. Once the crowd was moving, you were moving with it. There was no, there was, you were at the mercy of the crowd, pretty much. There was no way you would have been able to move around or keep yourself stable. Using tracking software, a physicist analyzed the crowd's movement in the south quadrant for the post at about three minutes into Scott's performance. Over five seconds, the trajectory of 12 randomly selected people is similar. Evidence, he said, that the people were being pushed in the same direction by the tide of the crowd, losing control of independent movement, and not merely moving to the music. At the post's request, researchers at Carnegie Mellon University used a crowd-counting model to estimate the density in the area where the post-examination located victims. They found that roughly three minutes into the concert, in some pockets of the area where the video image was clearest, the density reached as high as 1.85 square feet per person. The researchers noted that the actual density for the section was likely higher than their estimate because the image from the scene was taken at night with low resolution and showed smoke from fireworks, making some people difficult to detect. A density of 1.5 square feet per person can cause compressive asphyxiation with so little space that people cannot draw a breath, according to the crowd experts. One calls it a crushing point. I was like, man, this is like, this is not safe. Like, I started to notice, I look in front of me, I see people uh, crying, I look in the side of me, I see my friends, they're yelling for help, they're, they're saying, we gotta get out. About five minutes into the show, a video exclusively obtained by the Post shows desperation in the area immediately adjacent to Ezra Blunt in the South Quadrant. He can't breathe! He can't breathe! Around the same time, people shout for help nearby. All Americans over 65 are getting a large benefit this month, but only if they claim it. If you were born before 1957, you could get a $4,900 benefit this month. Millions of Americans could get this benefit, but very few even know it exists. This can help seniors to pay for groceries, health care, dental bills, and other expenses. You do not need to pay anything to check if you are eligible, and doing so can put thousands of dollars back into your pocket. Many people are shocked when they find out they can get a $4,900 benefit this month. It's completely free to check if you're eligible, and takes just 60 seconds. Click the learn more button below this video to check if you qualify for free. That's a lie. They don't advertise government grants and benefits. 23-year-old college student Rudy Pena, another of those who died, is seen wedged among people who are fighting for space, according to his family's lawyer. People started trying to hop over the, that security fence and people pinned up against it could see the panic and fear in their eyes. These fenced off corralled areas, they allowed nowhere to escape. It was one way in, one way out. As people in the crowd try to get out, others fall on top of each other, similar to a scene one witness described. And, you know, we all got sucked into this black hole, basically. You know, it's kind of like pulling the tub on the bathtub, everyone just gets sucked in. A phenomenon known as crowd collapse, when high density and other factors can cause people to fall on top of each other, is clearly evident at about 9.12 p.m., two experts said. Video filmed around 16 minutes into the concert, which the post is not displaying because of its graphic nature, shows what appears to be several unconscious people lying atop each other. Among them is 21-year-old engineering and computer science student Axel Acosta one of the deceased. Best friends and college students, 20-year-old Jacob Juranek and 21-year-old Franco Patino are both visible in the same video and died that night. At 9.18, a Houston firefighter outside the venue, but monitoring radio communication channels used inside the festival, notes a, quote, report of individual with crush injury, breathing difficulty. Flare-ups in more areas of the venue become evident in the next several minutes. 
but other concertgoers are unaware of any life-threatening distress. People obviously were like pushing and stuff, but no one was on the ground in the area I was at. We didn't hear anyone saying, like, stop the show. Uh, we didn't hear anyone saying, oh, people are getting hurt. At around 9.28, video shows other people are on the ground in the South Quadrant, pleading for help and dialing 911. People were literally on the floor getting their faces stomped in. We were just trying to pull kids over that barricade. Around a half hour into the performance, fans continue to try and summon help. A man from the crowd attempts to scale a platform to reach camera operators to stop the show. The Houston Firefighters Log notes at 9.30 that police are reporting, quote, multiple people trampled, passed out at front of stage. At that point, an emergency vehicle with flashing lights tries to make its way through the crowd in the east. If everybody good, put a middle finger up in the sky. Okay, where my guy, man? At 9.39, with the concert continuing, Houston Fire makes the first call captured in a public communications channel for backup. Special events stand by. Ambulance 33, Ambulance 37, Ambulance 46. These paramedics, they were battling to try to fight their way through to get the people that were in the crowd, as well as trying to have people pass bodies over that fence in that walkway. Scott pauses mid-song at around 9.42 and asks security to help a person passed out near the front of the main stage. Security and Houston police carry the man out of the crowd. Meanwhile, festival goers in the South Quadrant wave their arms and chant in unison for an end to the concert. At 9.43, a photo shows Rudy Pena, the college student seen earlier, removed from the crowd and receiving medical attention. His attorney told the Post that although the medical examiner has not yet released a cause of death, Pena's face was disfigured due to being stepped on. Around 9.46 in the South Quadrant, medical personnel do chest compressions on at least two people. The fire incident commander declares the scene a mass casualty incident by 9.52 p.m., according to the Houston Firefighters Log, a trigger that doubles the number of responding firefighters. Roughly two minutes later, rapper Drake makes a surprise appearance on stage. The show ends around 10-12, with Scott closing it out, running about 72 minutes in all, and continuing about 42 minutes after police first reported that multiple people had been trampled. It's just something that you'll never forget and something that's truly traumatizing. Knowing that people died that night um, and then knowing that people were asking for my help, you know, that's just very scary, you know. I, to this day, I still, I, their voices don't leave my head.
pizza. Hot and ready. Okay. All right. I must admit I've been there before. Uh, there's a man in Tennessee who decided to hold up a Little Caesars with an AK-47 after being told that he had to wait for his hot and ready pizza for 10 minutes. Knoxville, Tennessee. This man held up a Little Caesar at Cedar Bluff with an AK-47 rifle after being told his pepperoni pizza would take 10 minutes. Here's the picture of the guy. His name is Charles Doty Jr. All right? Charles don't play about his damn pizza. Charles <laughs> has now been arrested by the Knoxville Police Department. Officers responded to the restaurant just after 9 p.m. on Friday where they were told that the suspect, identified as Charles Doty Jr., 53, became upset when he was told that his pepperoni pizza would take 10 minutes to make. According to the report, he got upset and demanded a free breadstick order. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, y'all. I'm trying to get through this story because it's true. He demanded a free breadstick order and went outside the business to wait for the pizza. Okay? When Mr. Doty returned, he had the rifle in his hand and was pointing it at employees. Obviously, they were terrified. Demanding his pizza immediately, the report reads, Doty Jr. reportedly stopped an employee who was trying to leave the Little Caesars asking, and I quote, where in the hell he thought he was going? And a woman waiting in the line ended up giving him her pizza in an attempt to get him to leave. That's a nice lady because he would not have gotten my damn hot and ready. I promise you that. All right. According to the report, police later tracked him down and arrested him. He is charged with aggravated assault and um, aggravated kidnapping. He comes walking back in and hasn't pointed at anybody yet. I was taking care of a female customer and she was just getting ready to leave. Then he gets the gun. He pointed at me saying, where is my damn pizza? I want my pizza, said former Little Caesars employee uh, Kimberly, uh, Kimberly Smith. I was shocked it was over a $6 pizza. Uh, people can be petty, okay? Uh, so, obviously, our hearts are with the employees because this had to be one of the most traumatic experiences they've ever had, all right? So I don't minimize the reality of what they went through. But damn, pizza? We're not even talking about Chicago Deep Dish here. We're talking about Little Caesars, okay? Ben, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a difficult time keeping it together when you said demanded free breadsticks. <laughs> I was like... Like he's demanding, like, hey, Little Caesars Pizza is not that good, right? Like, it's it's definitely not that good, right? Um, and like six dollars, like, like I mean, come on, come on, like, are people, are we really at a point where people are like holding up Little Caesars Pizza because they want their pizza faster and they want like a free garlic bread, like, like. I don't know, because, yeah, it's an absolutely terrifying situation for the people who are working there. I mean, they work at Little Caesars, right? Minimum wage, minimum effort. And that is a situation that requires maximum effort. Um, like, yeah. you know, and so it's it's just it's just wild that we're at this place where he's holding up a Little Caesars pizza. I like. I, you know yeah. what? I just, you know, I wonder what he's saying in jail right now, because somebody's going to say, hey, man, what are you in here for? Like, how are you going to explain that? Okay? <laughs> you need to just make something up, sir, at this point. Do not tell people why you're actually incarcerated. Same or next day. Countries around the world taking drastic action to stop the spread of a new COVID variant, the new travel warning from the U.S. State Department, New York declaring a state of emergency, Israel banning all foreign visitors in an attempt to keep the Omicron variant out as the United Kingdom imposes new restrictions for all arriving travelers. This variant is spreading around the world as the first cases are detected there. New questions about how transmissible and dangerous Omicron is, and the warning today that the variant is likely already in the U.S. We talked to the experts to get you answers. How worried should we all be about this? 
Back to businesses. Shoppers are out in force as we enter peak holiday shopping season, but many are asking, where are the deals? Smash and grab. The new round of shocking robberies putting communities on high alert across the country. War of words. A Republican congresswoman under fire for an anti-Muslim joke directed at a member of Congress. Her apology tonight and why Democrats say it's not enough. And angel from above. The World War II pilot who never stopped saving lives. This is NBC Nightly News with Jose Diaz-Balart. Good evening. Developments came at lightning speed today as officials around the world took major steps to stop the spread of that brand new COVID variant named Omicron. Israel is taking the most extreme measures, announcing late today no foreign visitors will be allowed in. Suspected cases of the new variant popped up around the world today in the UK, Netherlands, Italy and Germany, joining previously known cases in other countries across the globe. We know you have a lot of questions about this new variant and in a moment we will lay out what we know and don't know about how dangerous it is. But we begin with Gabe Gutierrez and the rapid global response. Tonight, drastic measures to contain the Omicron variant. Israel, which is one confirmed case so far, now banning foreign visitors for two weeks. The first country to completely close its borders. The UK also tightening rules on travel and mask wearing. This is the responsible course of action to slow down the seeding and the spread of this new variant. British citizen and business traveler Henry Warren now says he's stuck in South Africa. We failed spectacularly at that, despite a rapid drive to the airport uh, to try and see if there was any flights leaving. So now we're, we're kind of in limbo, uh, hoping we can get home for Christmas. Also today, Britain, Germany and Italy announced their first Omicron cases. They follow Belgium. More countries now clamping down on travel from southern Africa. 61 people flying from the region to the Netherlands have tested positive for COVID. Authorities now checking how many are infected with the new variant. We're going to take every precaution, and so that's why we've taken the measures we have. The Biden administration's new travel restrictions from South Africa and seven other surrounding countries are set to take effect on Monday. Today, the CDC and State Department advising against travel to the region. This morning, passengers from there arriving at Newark after a long flight. We just heard about it. We were just hoping we would be able to get out of there last night, so... Luckily, we made it. New York's governor has declared a state of emergency starting next week, allowing the state to increase hospital capacity and fight potential staffing shortages. No Omicron cases have been identified yet in the U.S., but experts say it's likely the variant is already here. I would not be surprised if it is. We have not detected it yet, but when you have a virus that is showing this degree of transmissibility, it almost invariably is ultimately going to go essentially all over Scientists are now scrambling to study Omicron. Early indications are that it's highly contagious because of its many mutations. This is a real reminder to us all that this pandemic is far from over. What's better than giving a better phone this holiday? Citizens? No, Jose. The restrictions don't ban flights or apply to American citizens or lawful permanent residents, but they do prevent foreign visitors from South Africa and those seven surrounding nations from arriving here in the U.S., Jose. Gabriel Gutierrez in New York, thank you. We know you have a lot of questions about this. So we want to take a step back for a closer look at why the world is reacting so aggressively to this new variant and what you should do in your own day-to-day -day life. Even as the world rushes to stop the spread of this new variant, there is still so much we don't yet know. We just unfortunately don't have enough data yet. This is all early data. We don't actually know if what we have observed in, in this brief moment in South Africa's epidemiology is really heralding that this might be a worldwide threat. What has public health officials across the globe so concerned, though, are the large number of mutations seen in this strain. What do we know about this variant? The reason this variant is of concern is because it has many more mutations in this one variant, including many on the spike protein. That spike protein is the part of the virus that helps it infect humans, and the Omicron strain has some 30 mutations on it alone. 
The concerning part is these mutations that we've seen before in other places and other variants seem to, you know, seem to be the kind of mutations that can both increase the transmissibility, making it easier for one person to pass it to another, but potentially also evade the immune system. And many of the mutations in Omicron are similar to the highly contagious mutations in Delta. So do we know if it is indeed more transmissible than, for example, the Delta variant? I think if you look at the data out of South Africa, it does appear that it is more transmissible than Delta. But I think, again, this is sort of a small sample size. That small sample size is only around 100 confirmed cases of Omicron in South Africa. But officials in that country describe an exponential rise in overall COVID cases there and blame the new variant with many likely not yet confirmed as to whether it's more dangerous once infected. So we actually don't know anything about the kind of disease that it causes in terms of increased mortality or different disease features. Here in the U.S., public health officials are promoting vaccines and now boosters as the best defense against this new variant. It is absolutely essential that unvaccinated people get vaccinated and the vaccinated people get boosters. So do we know if the vaccines, the, the ones that are, for example, the ones that you know we've taken in the United States, are they effective? I think that's a question that we will hopefully have information on in the next couple of weeks. And one thing that I would say that might set people's minds at ease is that to date, no variant has been able to completely evade the immune memory that's from vaccines. If not, the vaccine makers say they're already working toward an Omicron-specific vaccine. On Monday, the U.S. will join other countries in banning flights from South African countries. Will this travel ban help, you think, Dr. Bedelia? I think you know, the best that travel bans can do is slow the spread. They can't actually stop the spread of variants. Experts stress just how much this is the early stages. Here in the U.S., the CDC hasn't officially confirmed any cases of the Omicron variant. How worried should we all be about this? I think you should obviously pay attention. I mean, even without this variant, Delta is still here. Delta is still causing cases. The best thing you can do is not panic. If you haven't been vaccinated, to get vaccinated. If you haven't gotten boosted, to get boosted. If you're sick, to get tested. Really, that's the best thing you can do. There's just so much we still don't know about this, but we have a lot to learn. The holiday shopping season is officially... from other variants becoming the dominant strain in South Africa in just a matter of days. But there is still a lot we don't know about the variant, including how transmissible it is and how serious infections can be. While researchers around the world are working to answer those questions, the World Health Organization says the Omicron variant poses a very high global risk and could lead to a new COVID wave. The first cases were detected in Southern Africa last week, and since then, 14 countries have detected Omicron. You're looking at them on your map right now. That includes seven countries in Europe, three countries in Africa, and Canada. World leaders are taking steps that they say are aimed at containing the variant by putting in place travel bans from South Africa. Passengers trying to leave that country are now stranded as borders shut down in response to Omicron. It's too early to tell whether the current vaccines will be effective in protecting against this new variant. Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson have all released statements saying they have begun testing and modifying their vaccines to fight this. Dr. Anthony Fauci is urging everyone to get vaccinated and boosted immediately. Even when you have variants of concern, you do well against them. It may not be as good in protecting against initial infection, but it has a very important impact on diminishing the likelihood that you're going to get a severe outcome from it. So this is a clarion call as far as I'm yeah. concerned of saying, let's put aside all of these differences that we have and say, if you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you're fully vaccinated, get boosted and get the children vaccinated also. 
We have a team of experts in the field to help us break down the very latest COVID variant news from every angle. We want to start this morning with NBC News medical contributor Dr. Kavita Patel and the latest on what we know and also what we don't know yet about this variant. So, Dr. Patel, good morning to you. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving with your family. What do we know so far about this variant? How concerned should we be? Yeah, Lindsay, Savannah, good morning. This is something that raises a lot of concern, but really because of a couple of reasons couple of facts. Number one, there are approximately 32 mutations to that red spike protein that give it a lot more kind of opportunity to infect people, attach to people even, and raises that possibility of what we call immunity escape. It, but none of that has been proven. So that mutation number alone has alarmed many officials. Fact number two, we've seen, just as you pointed out, Lindsay, an incredible number of people across the globe that seem to have pretty quickly been identified with the Omicron variant. So that speaks to a potential high transmissibility or a high infection rate, even more than Delta. And then I think what's left and what we don't know is really the important pieces. Do our current vaccines work against this? There is really no plausible way that our vaccines are rendered utterly useless against this variant. So the question is, how much of a reduction is there? And is that reduction significant enough to kind of cause more hospitalizations? And, and I, right now, the evidence doesn't point to that, but it's still early. And then I think the next question is, what can we do about it? And I think, you know, you heard Dr. Fauci get vaccinated. I think it's also an emphasis, something to talk about getting boosted. Boosters can broaden your immunity and potentially kickstart your body into also developing immunity against different variants, including potentially the Omicron variant. So, Dr. Patel, that's exactly what I want to ask you about next is the shots, getting boosted, getting vaccinated in the first place. So, obviously, you just laid out all these questions that we still don't have answered. Dr. Fauci also specifically told President Biden it could take up to two weeks before we know more about this variant. But in the meantime, everyone is being urged to get vaccinated. And we have heard that these companies are all testing their vaccines against this new variant, potentially modifying them. So explain right now why it makes sense to go get this booster. Is there a potential, though, that the shots could change? Is it going to be a different vaccine and you're going to be boosted with something and then need something else again later? How does this work right now in this kind of in-between time before we know more? Yeah, great question. So, Savannah, listen, I, I can't stress this enough. Do not wait for a, quote, modified version of a vaccine for simply for the reason that that could take time, and we're in a race against time. We're watching how quickly any virus is spreading. By the way, we saw this with Delta. If you recall, I think a number of us were wondering if the current vaccines would work against the Delta variant. Until we had that evidence, there were conversations around tweaking, and all manufacturers said the same thing, that they have the ability, and they do, to quickly, within weeks, Savannah, potentially turn around a new formulation. But that doesn't turn into shots in arms. We have, around any part of the country, shots in arms that are available for people who are not vaccinated and then for people who need boosters and the role of the booster just to kind of say why you need it now and why you shouldn't wait the booster really does kick start your body and tells your body hey remember that vaccine we had months ago we want to prime and increase those antibodies but we also want your antibodies to be a little bit smarter and develop even more antibodies that could protect you against even more variants that's critical for now all right, Dr. Patel, how much of a role does vaccine inequality play in the spread of this variant? Yeah, very much so, Lindsay. And if you look at the African nations that we've got approximately 2 to 10 percent of African nations vaccinated, that offers just an incredibly large reservoir of opportunity for variants and mutations to develop. So this is just another stark reminder that we're not out of this until we're all vaccinated at as high a rate as possible, putting pressure on many countries like the United States, not just to do travel restrictions, but to also think about how can we amp up opportunity. It's not even the supply, Lindsay. I think it's really about countries' abilities to actually deliver the vaccines into arms. All right, Dr. Kavita Patel, thanks so much for joining us on this. Now, as countries around the world react to the Omicron variant, here in the U.S., COVID cases from those other variants are rising in dozens of states as we continue the holiday season. New York has already declared a state of emergency to prepare for the new potential variant, but doctors say they're exhausted and another surge could bring our health care system to another halt. Let's now bring in NBC News correspondent Antonia Hilton from Boston and NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley from London for more on this. Good morning to both of you. And Antonia, I'll begin with you. So you're outside 
outside of Massachusetts General Hospital. So there's been an uptick there in COVID cases in recent weeks. Those are cases not from the Omicron variant, but from Delta, anything else, just as we've seen sort of the weather get colder. We've watched this happen before. How strained is the healthcare system there and how are they preparing for the potential of this new variant causing an even bigger spike? Good morning, Savannah. The health system here in Massachusetts is extremely strained. Uh, at MGH behind me here, they're actively treating about 40 COVID patients, but the system isn't just strained by COVID, also strained by elective procedures, treatments, and surgeries that in some cases people put off throughout other phases of this pandemic. And as you mentioned, you know, physicians, nurses, people working at every level of these institutions are experiencing extreme burnout after all of these waves and new uh, variants have already been introduced. I mean, it's been a scramble every time. And what I would describe right now is that people working in this system and around New England, where these cases are taking up, uh, they're bracing for what this new variant could bring. Take a listen to Dr. Raja Ali of MGH's emergency room system here. If somebody gets the sniffles, rightfully so, we send them home from work and they stay out for a period until they're cleared. Um, if we actually end up with a variant that's more transmissible despite the virus, I'm worried about the impact that, that will have on our workforce. The bigger issue, though, is that everybody is just really burnt out. The nurses, the doctors, the environmental services staff, everybody is exhausted. And we, we just don't have enough staff to take care of the patients right now. And that could get worse if we see even more patients. In anticipation of these kinds of fears, New York City has already announced a state of emergency that is going to allow their hospital systems to turn away or to cancel appointments and procedures that are non-urgent. And right now that has not happened in Massachusetts, but certainly officials in this state and elsewhere are really watching very closely to see what they might have to do to ensure that the kind of crisis he just described there doesn't happen. Savannah? Absolutely. Now, Matt, let's talk about overseas. So Omicron has already been detected in several European countries, including the Netherlands and, Netherlands and Denmark. Are European officials worried they could be facing another wave ahead of winter due to this new variant? I mean, they're not worried so much about another wave. There's already been another wave, not of Omicron, but of just normal COVID, the Delta variant, other variants. This is already upon us in mainland Europe. Here in Britain, it's a little bit different. There's only three cases of Omicron. And, you know, uh, officials here are still very, very worried, even though we're not seeing the same surge in cases. And that's because all of this is precautionary. And that's why today there's going to be a meeting of uh, the government board that deals with immunizations, uh, they're going to be probably deciding that they're going to be lowering the age for the booster shots and encouraging everybody over the age of 18 to get a booster shot, even though Britain has seen quite a lot um, of vaccination, a very successful vaccination campaign. But, you know, Britain is also the president, the rotating president of the G7, and they've called a meeting of G7 nations of health ministers to try to determine what to do about this very troubling new variant. It bears repeating again, there is no really conclusive proof that this is going to make everything worse in terms of the pandemic, in terms of spread, in terms of the lethality of the disease. But there's still so much concern that the G7 is going to be meeting together and trying to decide how to do this next. That's being led by Britain. Switch your business to the power of Verizon 5G and your employees can get the 5G. How's everybody doing? Today is Monday, November 29th, 2021. It's 2.42 p.m. on the West Coast. Okay, the news reporters are back. Now kind of prepare for Omicron and, and kind of know that that variant is on its way here. Absolutely. And they're actively having all of those conversations right now. I mean, the major lesson learned for doctors in fighting the Delta variant was just how dangerous it is to still have large pockets of unvaccinated people. Even in a state like Massachusetts, which is highly vaccinated, there are still these major pockets. And so long as pockets within the United States or globally are there, uh, that means that new variants like Omicron or others can continue to emerge. And in order to fight that, doctors have realized really, as this has continued on, uh, now stretching into years, look, that the, the real critical work is these 
patient to provider conversations, building trust in communities with low vaccination rates, and really having these one-on-one conversations to understand still at this stage in the pandemic, what are people's fears around getting vaccinated or potentially getting boosted at this stage? Take a listen to Dr. Ali again on the lessons he's learned throughout all of this. The thing I learned from Delta and the fact that we had a variant that was exceptionally transmissible is that there are still patients who I and other healthcare workers can win over by just taking the time to talk to them. And the fact is that I'm still going to keep trying and everybody I work with is still going to keep trying. We're not giving up on talking to patients and educating them and helping them with whatever it is that's keeping them from getting vaccinated. I want to make sure that we get as many people vaccinated and having a transmissible variant just means that we need to try twice as hard to make that happen. While there's still so much unknown about Omicron, doctors' consistent messaging right now is that the best defense is going to get vaccinated if you have not been vaccinated yet, or if you're still holding out on getting your booster shot, which is now widely available, to please go and do that. They say that this is still going to be our best protection no matter what we learned about this new variant and when we eventually find out its arrival has happened here in the United States. And Matt, quickly, you mentioned this urgent meeting of G7 health ministers today. What's the hope to come out of that meeting? What are we hoping that they decide on or that they're able to talk through? Well, a coordinated response, especially among the wealthy world. That's what's, that's what's being represented by the G7. But one thing that the rest of the world is going to be looking at, and this is something that Antonia mentioned with regard to the United States, these pockets of unvaccinated people in the U.S. on the global level. You're seeing that with whole continents. Africa only has about 7% of that continent is vaccinated. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's compared to more than 40% on a global level. It's because of the lack of vaccinations in poorer countries that scientists say that this is giving rise to new variants like Omicron. And that is one of the things that a lot of the world is going to be looking for the G7 to do to start to spread vaccinations throughout the world beyond just the developed West. Guys. Matt Bradley and Antonia Hilton, thank you so much. President Biden is scheduled to speak about this new variant later this morning. Yesterday, he met with Dr. Anthony Fauci and the COVID-19 response team to get an update. And travel restrictions from eight African countries to the U.S. go into effect today. Let's bring in NBC News correspondent Mike Memoli. So, Mike, good morning. How concerned is the White House about this and what came out of that meeting yesterday? Well, Lindsay, to put it bluntly, anything that concerns the American people concerns this White House. You saw before the Thanksgiving holiday, the White House trying to get a little bit more proactive as it relates to some other issues that were concerning the American people, including inflation and supply chain challenges, including the release of fuel from the National Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But we're also now seeing the president before the Thanksgiving holiday talk about how far we'd come in the pandemic, comparing the way Americans were gathered for Thanksgiving holiday uh, in a way that they hadn't been the year before. But now you saw the president returning from his traditional Thanksgiving getaway in Nantucket, meeting immediately with his COVID response team to try to show that they're getting ahead of this situation. And that's what we heard from the president afterwards in in the form of a readout from the White House was two things. One, that he heard from Dr. Fauci that we really need to wait for more information. It's going to be at least two weeks until we get the really full information about just how transmissible this is and the severity of this, including whether the vaccines hold up. But at this stage, it was the president's readout that we do expect that these vaccines are largely going to be effective against the virus, but clearly another jolt to the system for a White House that didn't need another one at this point. Do you expect that the president will be um, more warning the people, uh, American people, saying what we know, what we don't know, trying to calm fears, or do you expect also new restrictions will be announced? Well, what we've seen from this White House is that, as the president himself has said, he is always going to speak straight to the American people about what we know, what we don't know, and about the measures that need to happen here. But we already know that the White House was preparing for a fall surge, a winter surge of the virus, especially given the holidays when people tend to gather, people are inside more. And so what we're likely to hear from the president, according to White House officials, is sort of following the best practices that have already been laid out. Get your booster if you're eligible, if you're able to at this point. Get vaccinated if you hadn't done this at this point. What the White House was already battling was a lot of jurisdictions, including here in D.C., had started lifting things like mask mandates uh, in public places. And so now they're going to be urging Americans to do all the known uh, best practices to try to avoid transmission of any variant here. It could be a challenge. It's not just healthcare workers that are burned out. The American public as well are tired of the pandemic. Mike, thanks so much. Yeah.
The highly anticipated trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, the former girlfriend of convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, begins today. Maxwell faces six criminal counts, including sex trafficking charges for allegedly helping Jeffrey Epstein recruit and abuse underage girls. She's pleaded not guilty to all of those charges as opening statements are set to begin in just a few hours. NBC News correspondent for investigations Tom Winter is outside the courthouse in New York City. Tom, good morning. So first, just tell us what can we expect on this first day of the trial and also remind us of all those charges that Ghislaine Maxwell's facing. That's right, Savannah. As you can see behind me, people are already starting to get in line, observers, reporters, uh, for this trial today. It's uh, obviously a very different courtroom and a very different setting than uh, from when this uh, this whole episode first came up, when Jeffrey Epstein was taken into custody over several years ago uh, with the coronavirus. The courtroom uh, looks more like a uh, hockey penalty box, plexiglass everywhere. But as you said, uh, a whole host of charges that Ghislaine Maxwell faces today. She'll be in court. She's likely already here. They transport her to this courthouse early in the morning. She faces a number of different charges. Enticement of a minor to travel for the purposes of legal sex, uh, conspiracy to transport a minor for sex, sex trafficking conspiracy, sex trafficking of a minor. And Savannah, this is uh, conduct that goes all the way back to 1994 up to 2004. It involves uh, alleged illegal activities that took place uh, at Epstein's property in New Mexico, at his property in Florida, here in New York City, as well as Maxwell's house in London. In England. And Tom, I want to ask you about one of the higher profile allegations here. One of Epstein's victims, Virginia Jufri, has claimed in a civil lawsuit that Maxwell allegedly trafficked her to Prince Andrew when she was 17. What more do we know about that accusation and could that come up in this trial? There's been a lot of speculation about whether or not uh, Virginia Giuffre uh, would come up at trial, whether any of the allegations against Prince Andrew, which she is strenuously denied, will come up, trial, uh, up at this trial, uh, along with a whole host of other bold-faced names, Savannah. But really, the judge has limited the types of testimony that can come in here, and this has to stay within the four corners of the indictment, as prosecutors say. They can only talk about the charges uh, and the conduct that they allege here. Perhaps several other victims may come in to uh, testify to the sex trafficking conspiracy, but nothing involving Virginia Giuffre is included in this indictment, so we don't expect to hear anything about that. Whether or not the prince's name comes up, well, it's a trial, and anything can happen, Savannah. All right, Tom Winter, thank you so much. The fashion world is mourning the loss of Virgil Abloh. The barrier-breaking fashion designer died yesterday at just 41 years old after a private battle with cancer. Switch your business to the power of Verizon 5G and your employees... their destination. So temperatures this morning, it is still a little brisk. You still need the jackets all the way through Florida. Definitely need the hat, gloves, and jackets in northern portions of Vermont. But much of the country is pretty clear. We have a little bit of light rain in southern portions of Florida. That's about it. There's some not a lot of problems. We will see some rain showers in the Pacific Northwest and the northern Rockies. A little bit of light still possible late today, heading into northern Michigan, Wisconsin, but nothing that's going to cause many issues. And notice the week ahead, there's just not any big storms on the horizon, even on Wednesday, pretty much nice across the country. It's unusually warm for many areas, but uh, as far as troublesome weather for travel goes, not going to see much of that. And even all the way out through Friday, we're only seeing some light snow in the Great Lakes in northern New England. We finally dried out the end of this week in the Pacific Northwest, and you notice that mild air in the middle of the country finally arrives in the east by the end of the week. So, uh, you know, as we head into December, sometimes it can be active, but that's not this year. Uh, these temperatures, uh, the warm air, We'll even make it to the East Coast this upcoming weekend. So oh, wow. uh, I don't have any snow for you. If you want snow, I'm not the person to come to. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I am kind of ready for snow. There was a tiny little bit that fell when I was taking my dog out early, I think, <laughs> yesterday teaser. morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Bill. Thanks so much. See you in a bit. Could the 2015 Iran nuclear deal be restored? That's what's at stake today as representatives from Iran, the U.S., and several European nations meet in Vienna. That's right. You might remember the agreement was a major achievement for then-President Barack Obama. The deal eased sanctions on Iran in return for strict limits on its nuclear program. But in 2018, former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the deal, reimposed the old sanctions, and introduced hundreds of new ones. Here to help us break down the new talks, we have political scientist and professor at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, Ian Bremmer. Ian, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us on this one. So we know there's a lot of moving parts in these meetings, but what are the prospects of a new deal being reached? They're very low. 
in fact, uh, the Iranian government uh, refused to allow the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, just last week access um, to sites to verify uh, their uh, levels of uh, enriched uranium. Um, we've got uh, big challenges because the Iranians uh, are saying that they refuse to come back into the deal unless the Americans ensure that the deal will be permanent, that a future administration won't be able to pull out of it. The U.S. is unwilling to do that. Uh, there's obviously no trust, and uh, the Iranians think they're in a much better geopolitical position than they were a few years ago. They can handle the sanctions. Energy prices are high, and uh, countries in the region, uh, like the Gulf states, allies of the U.S., are more willing to engage with Iran directly. So what cards does the U.S. have left to play then if you think that a deal is unlikely to be made with these talks? Well, we've got sanctions, obviously, uh, and short of that, the plan B that the Americans have been talking about is actually a smaller deal, which is give the Iranians some of the relief that they would have gotten in the Iranian nuclear deal if they returned to it, and have the Iranians freeze their program verifiably where it is right now, which, by the way, is literally just one month away from nuclear breakout capabilities, that if they wanted to develop a nuclear weapon, they would have the enriched uranium levels to be able to do it. That's four weeks away. That is the American plan B. The problem is that the plan B for other countries in the region is very different. For Israel, that's unacceptable. The plan B is increasingly take direct uh, both espionage and sabotage and military strikes against Iran to prevent them from be being that close to nuclear capability. While for the Saudis, for the Emiratis, for other American allies in the region, the plan B is, why do we care so much about nukes they'll never use? We're more worried about fighting with them in proxies uh, across the region and support for terrorism. We want to engage with Iran directly. So the United States doesn't really have an effective coordinated plan B. And Ian, quickly, is there any chance that the original deal is just reinstated? That's the problem. The U.S. under the Trump administration left the original deal unilaterally. Every other signatory, allies and adversaries of the U.S. opposed that. And now, four years later, the ability of the United States to get back into the deal uh, isn't there. Uh, you've got a new Iranian government that's more hardline, and they're saying no thank you. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, this is when, one where the lack of consistency in U.S. foreign policy is really undermining our own national interest. Ian Bremer, thank you so much for walking us through that. Let's now take a look at what else is making news around the world this morning. Matt Bodner joins us now from Moscow. Good morning, Matt. Lindsay Savannah, good morning. We'll start this hour off in Amsterdam, where police chased down and arrested a couple who escaped from a COVID-19 quarantine hotel and then attempted to fly off to Spain. The couple is a Spanish man and a Portuguese woman. They were among those who tested positive on a flight into Europe from South Africa, where, of course, uh, the new Omicron Delta, uh, variant has been detected. Uh, the couple was arrested on the plane before it could take off for Spain, so they got pretty far. We move along now to South America, where a 7.5 magnitude earthquake rattled northern Peru this morning. No deaths have been reported, but the tower of a 16th century church, this is uh, actually believed to be the oldest Catholic construction in the Amazon region, did collapse. Uh, the quake damaged other buildings in the region, and it was actually felt in Colombia as well. We finished off this hour in the UK, where 61 people were stranded in a pub in England over the weekend after a massive so uh, snowstorm hit Friday night. Pub goers gathered in the pub to enjoy an Oasis tribute bands when they suddenly realized that the snow had actually made it impossible to leave, and even then, driving conditions had become so poor that they spent the rest of the weekend sleeping on the pub floor. The band has changed its name to Snow Oasis. No reports yet, though, on the movie rights. <laughs> oh, Thank shucks. You Can you imagine that excuse? Oh, my goodness. I'm just stuck trapped in a pub. <laughs> but it was a little fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Matt, thanks so much. Welcome back. Lindsay Lohan is engaged. The actress announced the exciting news over the holiday weekend, sharing these photos with her now fiancé, Bader Shamus. The actress wrote on Instagram, my love, my life, my family, my future. Lohan and Shamus live in Dubai. They've been together for the last two years, according to The Independent. No word yet on any wedding plans. I did not know she lives in Dubai. <laughs> I didn't. I knew it was somewhere in that yeah. region. I thought it was Greece. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I remember there was... Something in Mykonos that everybody was loving, yeah. <laughs> but congrats to her, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now it's been nearly three years since actor Jesse Smollett claimed he was attacked 
by two men in Chicago, igniting a wave of scrutiny against him and the Cook County Prosecutor's Office. Well, today, Smollett will head to court over his alleged involvement in staging the attack where he could face several years behind bars if found guilty. NBC News correspondent Megan Fitzgerald joins us now from Chicago. Megan, good morning. So first, just give us a refresher on how we got to this point. There was a lot of back and forth. It was pretty confusing for a while. And now what were the allegations Smollett made regarding the alleged attack? And why has it taken this long for the trial to finally get underway? Savannah, good morning. Yeah, lots to unpack here. As you mentioned, it's been uh, nearly three years. So uh, this was back in January of 2019 when Jesse Smollett was in downtown Chicago. Uh, and he told police that it was around 2 a.m. when he was going to Subway and he was attacked. And he says it was a hate crime, uh, that the attacker uh, mentioned racial slurs and homophobic slurs, poured bleach on him and then put a noose around his neck. Uh, law enforcement officials investigated for several weeks uh, when they determined that this was a hoax. Now, since then, uh, Smollett has always maintained his innocence, um, but he has been charged essentially with lying uh, to police. Uh, and so why did this take so long? Well, uh, you'll remember that he was charged and then those charges were dropped because he accepted something called a pretrial diversion, which essentially isn't admitting guilt. Uh, it's kind of a, a nice deal, as, as legal experts put it, uh, where he was able to do community service and pay about $10,000 and the charges went away. But a special prosecutor was appointed a grand jury was convened uh, and those charges were brought back. Mm. Then, of course, we had the pandemic. So fast forward to where we are now. Uh, and he is expected in court uh, later on today, nine o'clock local time. Savannah. So, Megan, let's talk about what we'll see and hear in court. So what argument will the prosecution make against him today? And then also, are they going to call upon those two brothers who were involved in this attack to take the witness stand? Right. So we suspect to hear more of uh, the evidence that uh, that police gathered, which is what led them to the conclusion that this was a hoax. So we expect to see more of that. Uh, and we do suspect that we will be hearing from those two brothers. And keep in mind, uh, they have already uh, put out a statement saying that they regret their actions uh, in this alleged um, uh, incident here. So. Uh, given that statement, uh, given uh, the, the former superintendent of police here coming out so forcefully and saying that this was a hoax uh, and this was something that Smollett did to sort of boost his career, uh, it will definitely be interesting to see the evidence that's laid out in court. All right, Megan Fitzgerald, thank you so much. Turning now to the week ahead from that. How can you tell which one's the better deal? why they're so concerned about this variant more so than the last couple. Plus, the Supreme Court hears arguments this week on Mississippi's law that bars most abortions after 15 weeks. Spoke with the Mississippi governor, Tate Reeves, about why he'd like to see that law end up overturning Roe v. Wade. Then there's my exclusive interview with Donald Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen. Here are some of the most important answers from Meet the Press Compressed. What makes Omicron so concerning to you? The profile of the mutations strongly suggests that it's going to have an advantage in transmissibility and that it might evade immune protection that you would get, for example, from a monoclonal antibody or from the convalescent serum after a person's been infected and possibly even against some of the vaccine-induced antibodies. So it's not necessarily that that's going to happen, but it's a strong indication that we really need to be prepared for that. Why should the state of Mississippi tell a woman... Um, uh, what they should do with their body. Why shouldn't they have that, that individual freedom uh, to, uh, on their body, particularly in the first uh, 20 weeks? Well, this is a prime example, and, and the far left uh, loves to scream, my body, my choice. And what I would submit to you, Chuck, is they absolutely ignore the fact that in getting an abortion, there is an actual killing of an innocent, unborn child that is in that womb. Here's what we know about babies that are 15 weeks. We know that they have a heartbeat. We know that those babies at 15 weeks actually can open and close their hands. We know that they have developing lungs. And we know that those babies at 15 weeks can feel pain. And so when you talk, the, the difference between vaccine mandates and abortions is vaccines allow you to protect yourself. Abortions actually go in and kill other 
American babies. And let's just put this in perspective. Governor, hang on a minute. A vaccine is about protecting a larger community. A vaccine is about presenting, preventing spread. You could argue a vaccine mandate is a pro-life position. You could certainly argue that, Chuck, but even if you listen to Dr. Fauci's interview with you earlier today, he made it very clear that the vaccine may not keep you from getting the virus. It may not keep you from spreading the virus, but it can keep you from ending up in the hospital. That's what's been proven during this Delta surge that we've seen in, uh, in America is that the virus is continuing to being spread even amongst those who are vaccinated. Conversely, when you're talking about uh, the pro-life position of protecting unborn babies, let's put it also in perspective. The fact is that during this very horrible and challenging time since I was sworn into office in January of 2020, Chuck, we've had 800,000 American lives lost because of COVID. And my heart aches for every single one of those individuals that, that has died uh, because of COVID. And over 10,000 Mississippians, my heart breaks for every single one of them. But since Roe was enacted, 62 million American babies have been aborted and have therefore been killed. And that's why I think it's very important that people like myself and others across this country stand up for those unborn children because they don't have the ability to stand up for themselves. Should we expect to see actual indictments before the new year? You know, I generally try not to talk about the DA, which is now also includes the attorney general's uh, civil case in the same exact matter. So I really try not to talk about it because it's their investigation, nor do I want to tip off Trump or the Trump organization's uh, people about what is actually happening. So, you know, I, I would rather just not answer that specific question other than to say that you can bet your bottom dollar that Alan Weisselberg is not. And I truly say I mean this. Alan Weisselberg is not the you know, the key to this. They are going after Donald. They're going after Don Jr., Eric, Ivanka, they're a whole slew of individuals, um, family, you know, family as well. Well, we have been talking a lot about the rising cost of groceries lately. Yeah, we have, and it's forcing some really difficult choices for millions of families who count on government food assistance, assistance that's not going as far now. NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitelli has their story. Get some cereal off. The later it gets in the month, we can afford them now. the further Eric Tucker's grocery budget has to stretch. If I can feed my family for 10, 12 bucks a night, that works. What happens when you get towards the end of the month? The father of two boys in Orange County, California, lost his home and job during the pandemic and joined SNAP, the government's supplemental nutrition assistance program, previously called food stamps, to help feed his family. You want any noodles? It's forced some tough choices in the checkout line. What's that been like? Humiliating. You got to pick and choose your battle. Who am I going to upset? My, myself, my kid, what kid, you know? Um, it's not going to be the full, full fulfillment of a meal. The decisions made in these aisles go way beyond dollars and cents. Staying on budget can mean the difference between fruits and vegetables being swapped out for less costly sugary cereals and processed foods. All right, what else you boys want? But a new boost to the SNAP program could mean less pasta. Traditional and more produce for the one in eight Americans who use it to feed their families. Last month, SNAP upped its benefits by more than 25%. Families now get an average of $36 more per person each month. For Eric and his kids, that boost puts them at $606 a month, or just over $6 per person a day. It's just been a big, you know, a blessing for us. That extra money doesn't go as far these days. You might have more that you can budget with, but things also cost more. Milk went up a dollar, I think, a gallon. My kids eat a lot of cereal, and we do a lot of pastas, and, you know, milk's, yeah, a necessity. So, but when the, the prices went up without the, the blessing of the snap going up, um, it was like, okay, we're going to cut back on, you know, those things we used to eat. Higher prices, combined with the pandemic's continued financial fallout, also means leaning more heavily on food banks to fill the gaps of what SNAP can't cover. Gregory Scott runs this one in Southern California. Their demand for food tripled in 2020 and is likely to stay that way 
We had many, many people who we called newly vulnerable who had never been in line before were now um, dealing with food insecurity and hunger. During the pandemic, the single biggest request for my time as a congressperson was at food banks. Congresswoman Katie Porter represents this area. I think it's also important to think about these issues. They don't just happen in a vacuum, right? If we're not doing anything about housing costs, if we're not doing anything about the cost of childcare or the cost of prescription drugs, even if we're stepping up with food assistance, at the end of the day, families can run short. Now, the table's set for the holidays. I've gotten to a, a, a spot in life where I had to bite my pride. And Eric's table, fuller than it would have been. Other men and, and families need to know that there is resources out there, and we just need to ask for help. Ali Vitali, NBC News, Los Angeles. Time now for our CNBC Money Minute, the biggest financial headlines of the day and why they matter to you. Bertha Coombs joins us now. Good morning, Bertha. Hey, good morning, ladies. I don't know about you. I did not go to a store, but apparently a lot of us did on Black Friday, despite the new Omicron variant and supply chain issues. Sensormatic says customer traffic rose 48% from last year, although that was still down from 2019. And for the first time in nearly a decade, online sales fell from the previous year, according to Adobe. But overall, Black Friday was solid. MasterCard says sales were up. 30% compared to a year ago. Meantime, some restaurants are taking delivery and to-go orders off the menu during busy periods as they struggle with labor shortages and a return of dine-in customers. Delivery and to-go are often less profitable. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, Cheesecake Factory, Applebee's, and IHOP are among those cutting down when their kitchens get too busy. Darden Restaurants, the parent of Olive Garden, is reducing to-go and delivery businesses on weekends when its brands can only take about four orders every 15 minutes. So you better plan ahead. Meantime, Mike Tyson is the latest celebrity to launch a cannabis line. The former heavyweight boxing champ rolling out Tyson 2.0 on Black Friday. He's teaming up with Columbia Care, which is one of the largest multi-state operators in the medical cannabis business. Columbia runs about 100 dispensaries in 16 states. Tyson says his product is aimed primarily at people who are looking for physical and emotional relief. He's also heavily involved in the research, they say, and in the development process. And he says this is kind of what keeps him calm. He doesn't feel normal if he hasn't had it for a couple of days. Wow, that's really interesting. Interesting, right, Bertha? Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Bertha. All right, so it's Cyber Monday, and while a lot of people say they've already gotten a head start on their holiday shopping this year, some of us are just getting started guilty as charged. Joining us now to break it all down and how to find the best deals is the host of YouTube's Gadget Game Show, What the Heck is That?, and author of Gadget Nation, Steve Greenberg. So, Steve, good morning. You know, we just heard Bertha talking about the supply chain issues, throwing a wrench into everything. So, for those of us who have been... Hey, Lou. Auntie, forget her phone again? Yeah.